0: hey folks and welcome back to the theopolis podcast i'm your host brian motes and i'm the content manager at theopolis institute we at theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church participants in our programs learn to read the bible imaginatively worship god faithfully and engage the culture intelligently in this episode we start a new series with james jordan and this series is going to be on the topic of christian worldview but in usual fashion jim tackles this subject from a unique angle here he's going to begin his talks on a Christian worldview with a discussion of what the church is. As always, we do invite you to take a look at those links in the show notes. We have links there to our YouTube channel, social media handles, and some links to our upcoming events, specifically our intensive courses in the spring. We really hope that you enjoy this time of teaching. We wanna thank you so much for listening. And here's James Jordan speaking on the topic of the church.
1: Almighty God and heavenly father, you who are sovereign over all things and have created all things, we bow before you now, and express our thanks to you for our salvation, for the gift of life, and for the gift of your Holy Church. We ask now as we study the doctrine of the Church, as it relates to the everything that you have made in your world, we ask that your Holy Spirit would be with us to bless us, guide us as we think through these things. For we pray in the name of Christ, our Lord and King. Amen. We begin this morning a study of Christian worldview. And To begin with, we're going to look at the doctrine of the Church because the center of the Christian worldview is the throne of God as it is manifested on the earth in the Church. It is in the Church that Christ's word is proclaimed uh, with official power, and it is in the Church that Christ's throne is made visible in the sacraments. It is to the Church that men repair uh, for the particular worship of God. And Thus, in a very real sense, the Church is the center of the Christian world. This sets Christianity apart from all other religions which have as the center of their worldview the state, or in reaction against the state, the individual. In the Western world, the dialectic for the last two or three hundred years or more has been an antithesis between the state as the center of culture and the individual as the center of culture. What's known as classical liberalism or libertarianism makes the individual and his concerns in the economy the center of culture and civilization. As a result, the church in a libertarian culture in the United States is a libertarian culture, or has been. The church is seen as an organization made up voluntarily of individuals who have joined the church. Uh, And then as a variant of that, sometimes made up voluntarily of families. But the church takes its reality from the individuals who compose it. We think of this as a Congregationalist view of the church, but essentially it is part of a drift in Western civilization which began in the late Middle Ages and sees the center of culture in the individual, not in the church and not in the state. That's been our heritage in the United States, but the opposite pole from individualism it's not the church, but it's statism. And so in European cultures, and increasingly in the United States, the center of culture and the center of society is seen to be the state. The state is the, uh, basically the church, the place of worship, uh, the place of, um, well, I'm being a little bit hyperbolic there, but it's the center, the organizing structure of culture. Now, in the Christian worldview, there's sort of a balance among the four spheres of life, the individual and his calling the family, the state, and the church. All four of these are governmental powers. Christ is the head of each one. Each one is under God. And so we could say that each is equally ultimate with its own powers. And we'll talk about what those powers are uh, in the course of this lesson. But the fact remains that the place where men meet with God is not primarily the individual is not primarily in the family, is certainly not primarily through the state, but is primarily through the church. And so when we talk about worship and worship being the center of culture, we are talking about the doctrine of the church, an area which is very little explored. I think that when you look at the writings even of Reformed theologians in this country, when they start to talk about culture, they stop talking about the church and they start talking about the state and the individual. And we get an antithesis between laissez-faire capitalism on the one hand and statism on the other, and culture is talked about in these terms, and culture is not talked about as something that flows out from the throne of God, out from the church, and into the rest of the world. We, however, will have to take a somewhat different ground, more biblical ground, I believe, and talk about the church as the center of culture. But then we have to begin to refine that so that we don't wind up with a Roman Catholic view of the church, which draws everything into the institutional church and doesn't allow for any culture outside of it. And so let's talk, first of all, about the nature of the church. Now, in the Bible, the church is spoken of three different ways. Now, these ways aren't contradictory. They overlap But there are three different zones of meaning, three different sets of terminology used for the church. And the first type of language used about the church is the language of the people of God, language which speaks of the people of God. Now, the church as the people of God is set over against what? What is it that is different from the people of God? Different from the people of God. Did I say different than? I can't believe it. What is different from the people of God? Well, the enemies of God, the world. And so the people of God as a group are set over against the world as a group. And when we talk about the church in this sense, uh, the Am Yahweh, the people of God, we are talking about an ethical or cultural organic community. We're talking about people in everything they do. Christians in everything they do, whether it's eating or drinking, whether it's getting married or giving birth to babies or spanking children or working at fixing cars or playing football or before the throne of God offering sacrifices of praise before him, whatever they do, these are the people of God. And in that sense, the church is set off against the world. And the book of Ephesians speaks of the church that way. If we read Ephesians, we get this idea of the church as the people of God, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. Everything that Christians do and everything they are is the people of God. And that, that conception of the church is set off against the world. We use the word church for that. The Bible speaks of the church that way. But there's a second meaning of the word church. We use it to mean something different from that. The Bible does too. And that is we think of the church as the worship assembly. People drawn together in a place to worship God before his throne at special times, in a special place, under the government of special officers, what we call special worship. And this use of the word church, or being in church, or at church, which we find in 1 Corinthians, if you would like to to find a place in the Bible where the word church is used that way, ecclesia, which by the way just means church, it doesn't mean called out ones or anything like that. It means church. It's derived from Greek words that mean called-out ones, but that's what the Greek words mean. The word itself, ecclesia, means church. Okay. The worship assembly is set off against what? What is it that's different from the church gathered for worship assembly? Well, it's the church doing everything else it does, cultural activities. So we have sabbatical or Sabbath worship type activities, and we have cultural labor or play type activities. Of course, play can overlap. There's play in worship, and there's also play in cultural activities, oh, in, in uh, yes, in work. So we've got another meaning of the word church. The church as a worship assembly, and that's over against cultural activities. Now, in this sense, we can speak of Buddhists and Mohammedans also having worship assemblies. And, in a sense, they, they, they constitute false churches, all right, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, false churches. They have worship assemblies, or times and places of worship, and they, by their intention, set these off from other cultural activities. But the original and true form that we find in the Bible is sabbatical activities and cultural activities. And the sabbatical activities and the worship assembly we speak of as church. And that's another proper meaning of the word church, but it's different from the meaning people of God, all right? Now, the third uh, definition of the church, conception of the church, which we find in the Bible, and this is the one we're primarily going to be concerned with here, is the church as a government. By the way, for those of you who love Hebrew, the church as a worship assembly goes from the Hebrew word kahal, Q-A-H-A-L. The church as a government goes from the Hebrew word EDAH, apostrophe E-D-A-H, EDAH, which is a church as a government. And the church as a government is set over against other governments, such as the family, the state, and the individual in his calling. And if you want to read part of the Bible, it talks about the church as a government. We would read first and Second Timothy and Titus. So you see, the Bible speaks of the church in these three ways, the people of God over against the world the worship assembly over against other activities, and the government, a particular government structure on the earth established by God over against other government structures such as the state, the family, and the individual. As a government structure, the church is equal to these other government structures. But as a worship assembly, the church is the source of all other activities and considered as the people of God, the church is ultimately all that there's going to be uh, in the entire world. So you see, we have to distinguish among these meanings of church. If you don't, you begin to make logical mistakes, a logical error known as the error of equivocation, where a word that's used in two different ways, the meaning of one way is used for the other. For instance, in... Uh, Roman Catholicism, and in certain other kinds of thinking, the fact that the church is the primary thing in the world considered as a worship assembly is used logically to draw the conclusion that the church is the primary thing in the world as a government. But that's not true. The church is not the primary government in the world. It is one among four governments in the world. Now, that we might say there's a certain primacy to it, but even there we'd have to be careful. So we've got to distinguish between what's true of the church as a worship assembly, what's true of the church as a people of God, and what's true of the church as a government. They're interrelated, but there are differences of meaning. Okay? Having talked a little bit about the nature of the church in these three areas or zones of meaning, how do we recognize the church? This becomes important, becomes important if we're going to talk about church government. Okay? How would we recognize the people of God? How do you recognize the people of God? Okay, they're baptized. Now, I'm going to reserve that for a different meaning of the word church. Let's expand on it. The people of God is over against the enemies of God or the world. The people of God could be recognized by their lifestyle, everything they do, how they conduct themselves in business, how they conduct themselves in play, how they conduct their family lives, The people of God can be recognized in everything they do, and the Bible talks about that, doesn't it? It says when people see how you live, they'll recognize that you're different from other people. All right? So we can recognize the church as the people of God by a different way of life. Sometimes people say Christianity is not a religion, it's a way of life. That's true in one sense of the term church. It's not necessarily true in the others. Christianity certainly is a religion in certain other senses of the word. Now, how do we recognize the church as a worship assembly? Well, there we have to say we recognize it when we come to church and we see Christian worship in action, when we see the preaching of the Word of God and not of the Book of Mormon, when we see true doctrine and not false doctrine proclaimed, when we see the sacraments properly administered and not corruptly administered, we recognize the church as a worship assembly and there again that's a matter of intention you intended to come to church today to worship you didn't intend to come here to play hopefully you didn't intend to come here to get ammunition to use against the church hopefully you came here to worship god all right so that was your intention and we can recognize the church as a worship assembly over against cultural activities simply by seeing it worshiping finally How do we recognize the church as a government? Okay. Now, here is where we get into some of the more sticky kinds of issues that we need to talk about today. How do we recognize the church as a government? Uh, What makes it visible? What is the true church? Now, at this point, we need to talk, and we'll probably spend most of the hour here, about a fundamental difference in viewpoint about the church as a government, which exists in uh, Calvinistic circles. And I'm using the word Calvinist in quotation marks because Calvin only held to one of these two views. But people who think of themselves as Calvinists, that is, who are predestinarian, uh, hold to either one or two of these two, either one of these two views. And these are Catholic ecclesiology or separatist ecclesiology, and those are two completely different ways of looking at the Church as a government. And I have to say at the outset, so that you don't, this doesn't begin to dawn on you and you get puzzled, that the Puritans were wrong, for the most part, on this particular point. The Puritans, for the most part, were Separatists, Presbyterians are Catholics. We confess every Sunday morning and every Sunday night that we believe in the Holy Catholic Church and the Presbyterians have always intended to be Catholics. And that's why, if you begin to look at the history, you'll find Cromwell and the Puritans wound up in a war with the Scottish Presbyterians over this kind of thing. And we are on the Presbyterian or Catholic side, and the Puritans, in spite of the fact that we derive tremendous benefit from reading their books, uh, were on the other side of this, and uh, they were wrong. So let's look at the difference here and what we're talking about. What is the true church, and how do we recognize the church as a government? The Catholic Church, of which we are a part, and we believe that we are the truest part of the Catholic Church, um, defines the true church as a government in terms of sacraments, the preaching of the word, and a membership role. In other words, it defines it by very visible, obvious kinds of things, and we'll talk about them in a minute. But the separatist church attempts to come up with a true membership made up only of real Christians, okay, real Christians, because we all know that in the church there are people who aren't real Christians. They're hypocrites. They've got problems. They don't come very often, or they do this, or they do that. And so the tendency is to try to come up with a narrower list of people who can be a true church, and this is the goal of separatist ecclesiology as opposed to Catholic ecclesiology. Now there's one of two things they try to do. Some of them, and I don't think you'd find very many trying this, want to restrict the church membership only to the elect. Now there's a problem with that, and that is that Deuteronomy 29.29 says that the hidden things belong to the Lord, but the revealed things belong to us, and only God knows who the elect are. And so to restrict the membership of the church to the elect is very difficult unless you're God. You have to get out of being a creature and put yourself in God's place, and then you can look out into the church and you can distinguish between those who are elect and those who are not. You have to have insight into the decree. You have to be able to think the way God thinks, which we can't do. We don't have insight into his decree. We only have insight into his promises. And there's a difference between building a church on promises and building a church on the decree. We cannot do that. And so, not many people have tried to come up with a church made only of the elect. They've left that to God, and rightly so. But what they have tried to do is come up with a church that's made up only of regenerate people. This is the second way of trying to come up with a pure church on earth. Regenerate membership. Now, the problem with that is, and this is the Catholic or Reformed uh, Presbyterian answer to the view that we want to have only a regenerate church made up of visible saints, is that the Bible teaches us that only God looks on the heart, which means we can't. We can only look on the outward appearance. Only God looks on the heart. It says in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, The Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For, and then this is what's relevant for us, God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now, that is simply a definition of how we can act and how God acts. We simply cannot examine the hearts of people. We can't do it. It's not possible. There are, of course, all kinds of mystical sects in the United States today, ruled over by ministers, generally self-appointed, who claim that they can discern the hearts of people. They have this ability to look down inside of somebody else and tell if they're right or wrong, tell what their motivation is, tell whether they're really saved or not. Well, we may have suspicions about these things, and a pastor may go to somebody and say, brother, sister, you are acting in such a way that I have suspicions and I want to call upon you to shape up or to test yourself. That's all pastoral activity and that's all well and good as long as it doesn't get out of hand. But that's not where we make our ecclesiology. What can the church say for sure? Well, it can't say anything about the heart of people for sure, because only God can see the heart. It also says this in 1 Kings 8, verse 39, perhaps an even more powerful passage. 1 Kings 8:39. Uh, Solomon says, Then hear thou in heaven thy dwelling place, and forgive and act and render to each according to all his ways, whose heart thou knowest. For thou alone dost know the hearts of all the sons of men. Only God knows the heart. So when we talk about a regenerate church membership, we get into the matter of somebody somewhere deciding about the hearts of other people, which can't be done. Only God can see the heart. And so separatist ecclesiology generally winds up with smaller and smaller and smaller churches because people gradually show that their hearts aren't right, which means, by the way, practically speaking, that they aren't identical in their activities and attitudes to the leadership of the church. They can't get along exactly with the leadership of the church, and so their hearts are bad and they get put out or they leave because they don't can't really stay around. Now, again, our Puritan forefathers and our Baptist brethren today And there really aren't any Puritans left. The Congregationalist churches either wound up going Baptist and becoming consistent separatists, or they wound up becoming Presbyterians and moving to a more Catholic ecclesiology. This happened, by the way, if you know the history of Puritanism. The Puritan churches completely fell apart in their attempt to have a separatist visible membership. They wound up with what's called a halfway covenant, and then gradually this business of trying to discern the heart Completely collapsed and they moved into a more Catholic position and joined up with the Presbyterians and now there aren't any Puritan Congregationalist churches left. Maybe a handful here and there, but they hardly measure on the horizon of church sociology anymore. But the Baptists, of course, reformed Baptists, still try for this type of thing. And what they will come up with is that they have decided that there are certain outward marks of regeneracy. In other words, truly regenerate person sheds lots of tears when he gets convicted of sin. Now, that's not true. Certain kinds of people shed lots of tears when they're convicted of sin. Certain kinds of people don't. It's a matter of who your parents are, whether you shed lots of tears or not. Just like it's a matter of who your parents are, whether you can grow a beard. The Bible doesn't put great store by this. What the Bible does put store by is changed lives. So now we get to something that's fairly visible, and we can move back into a more Catholic position. We must have some way of knowing those that God wants us to regard as Christians. Who do we count as Christians then? If we can't know for sure that you're elect, and I can't know for sure that you're regenerate, then should I count you and treat you as a Christian, or should I count you and treat you as a non-Christian? Now we're into ecclesiological concerns. Whom should we count as a Christian? Not saying whether they are truly one or not, only God knows. And maybe I know if I am, and I think that's true. At least I can know if I am right now. And, you know, this is, uh, and I can know pretty much that you're a Christian too. It's not as if these are things we can't know anything about, but ultimately we have to have some standard of government. How do we know whom we should count as a Christian and whom we should treat as a Christian? Mr. X comes to us and says he has a problem. Should I treat him as a Christian or not? Should I say, hey, now look, you're a Christian, and so you need to shape up. You need to get on the stick. You need to repent of your sins and live up to the fact that you're a Christian here and start growing in the Lord. Do I say that to him? Or do I say, look, you're not a Christian. You need to be baptized, put your faith in Christ, come under the government of the church, and then start shaping up. Which do I say? Well, how do I tell? I have to talk to him for 24 hours and try to discern his heart. Well, not really. The Bible will give us visible marks to determine who should be counted in the visible church. Now, the point that I'm making here that the Bible regards the church as broader than true regenerate Christians is something that the Bible itself teaches. And I'd like to call your attention to a couple of passages that teach it so that we can be very clear about this. And we'll just look at the book of Romans. Romans starting in chapter 2, verse 25. And all we're trying to do from this is to see if the Bible recognizes a distinction between the objective visible church on the one hand and true regenerate heart Christians on the other. And which one, which group are we concerned with? We know that God is concerned with both groups. Which group are we concerned with? Should we try to be shaving off the unregenerate edge of the church like the separatist movements try to do? They're always shaving off the unregenerate edge of the church until finally they get a pure church of visible saints? Or are we supposed to just allow all those bad people in the church and not worry about it? Okay. And we would say the latter. We allow them in the church and we don't worry about them until they do something which is a visible, objective matter of government. That is, they commit adultery or they murder somebody or they quit coming to church, which is the usual thing. They apostatize and then they can be dealt with. Till then, we leave them in. We count them as Christians. We treat them as Christians. This is the way Jesus acted. This is what the Bible teaches. Let's look at it. In Romans 2:25. <coughs> For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law. But if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. That is, you can lose the benefits of your baptism. If, therefore, the uncircumcised man keep the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And will not he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who, though having the letter of the law and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? And then he says... This is what we want to get to. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, neither is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is from men, not from men, but from God. Okay? Now that's very true, and if we only had that, we would strive perhaps for a church made up only of inward saints. But Paul goes on to say, Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the advantage-benefit of circumcision, or we might say of baptism? Great in every respect, he says. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, the point that I want to make here is that there is a distinction drawn here between outward visible saints, uh, Christians, those who are counted as and treated as believers, and those who really and truly are. The Bible makes the distinction. But the Bible will also indicate to us that what we are concerned with is the outward believers. Let's also look just briefly at chapter 9 of Romans, verses 4 to 6. And let's just look at the privilege of the visible, objective, external church. The church as a government. Who are Israelites, to whom belong the adoption as sons, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, we could say the giving of the Holy Spirit too, the worship and the promises, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all God blessed forever, amen. For it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not Israel, all Israel who are of Israel. Okay. There again, the distinction is made between the elect and the church, or the visible church that we're concerned with. Now really, the the distinction is made in terms of perseverance, and that's what we will want to get to in a few minutes. The point that I wanted to make is that the Bible makes this distinction between those who are to be counted as Christians, that is all of Israel because they all were, God treated them as adopted, they had all these things, and on the other hand, The true believers who are really known only to God, and they become known to men through perseverance. See, time is a factor here. As history moves along, it becomes more and more evident. Uh, as the church disciplines itself properly, then we begin to see who the true Christians are. Now, let's talk a little bit here about this visible-invisible distinction. Our confessions and, uh, speak of the church as visible and invisible. Now, there really is no such thing as an invisible church. What they mean by that is the church as visible to God only, which is invisible to us, and the church which is visible to man. Okay. Now, this distinction is not found in the Bible. In other words, the Bible in distinguishing between the inward Jew and the outward Jew is not giving us a visible-invisible distinction, but the visible-invisible distinction is convenient for us Because it does give us a handle on this difference between the church as known to God and the church as known to men. The problem with the visible-invisible distinction is that it's very easy to draw a false conclusion from it. What's the false conclusion that is easily drawn? Well, it's that God only really cares about the invisible church. God doesn't really care about the visible church. The visible church isn't really his concern. Christ died for the elect. God only really cares about the elect. God gives His Holy Spirit to the elect to grant them regeneration. The elect are the ones that God cares about. They're the ones visible to Him, and the people in the invisible church—I mean, in the visible church—are not necessarily God's concern. So, if we had a chalkboard, which we never do, we would draw a little—we draw a big circle and say "visible church," and then we draw a little circle mostly inside the big circle, but a little bit on the outside because there are these individuals out here who believe and who haven't gotten into a church anywhere. We would say that's the true invisible church, and that's what God cares about, and that's what Jesus died for, and that's what the Bible's talking about, and that's what we ought to really worry about. Now, the result of that is that the the doctrine of the visible or institutional church then becomes something to be tossed away. Who cares about the visible church? Who cares about the sacraments? Who cares about the preaching of the word? We don't need it. We don't need to go to church. We can read the Bible on our own. We don't need the sacraments. There's nothing in the sacraments that's not also in the Bible, so who needs them? Then you get the Bollingerites who are consistent with that. No sacraments. And the Quakers as well. Very consistent. And they tend to become invisible churches too, by the way. As the years go by, there are fewer and fewer people in them until they become completely invisible. Because God doesn't bless that way of thinking. Now, I would suggest, along with other recent reform thinkers and some older ones, that we substitute a different way of thinking about the church, which would be a little bit truer to the Bible. And that is that we talk about the historical church and the eschatological church. Now, eschatological is a $64 word, which means, in part, last things. And we could talk, then, to be a little bit more... American about it, the historical church, and the final church, okay? The final church. Now, what do I mean by this? Well, that God is concerned with the church as it is right now. And the church as it is right now is not necessarily the same as the church as it will be on the day of judgment. That's the distinction. Let's set aside the distinction between elect people and church members, because the Bible doesn't really call attention to that. And we can set aside the distinction between inward Jews and outward Jews because that distinction is covered in what we're about to say. If we just froze history right now at this moment on November 14, 1982 and sliced into time, took a little section out of it and looked at it, we would be able to see the church. It wouldn't be difficult. The church is all the Christians. They're all the people who are in church today or who would be if they weren't sick. They're all the baptized people. They're people in the church of South India and in the Russian Orthodox Church and even in some branches of the Roman Catholic Church. They're all those Christians. Whether they're all saved or not truly on the inside, we don't know. But we can take a slice out of time and say, for today, this is the church. Now, are all those people going to be found on that last slice of time at the Day of Judgment? No. Because not all of them are going to persevere. In fact, there are people, when we pull this slice out, there are people in this slice of time who are elect, but who haven't joined the church yet. But they, at some later slice of time, if we pulled it out, we find that they were in the church, and on the Day of Judgment, they're going to be found because they persevere. Now, this is a distinction between the church historical and the final church, helps us to see, I think, a little bit better what the visible-invisible distinction was getting to. And it doesn't have the bad effect of causing us to think God doesn't care about the institutional church. Because right now, since time is real for God, God chooses to make time real to himself. Does God What church does God care about today on November 14th, 1982? It's the church which is right here. Now, on the Day of Judgment... That's the church that's God's concern. But we're not living on the day of judgment. God sees the day of judgment. But since God has chosen to make time and history real to himself, God is not at the day of judgment either in that sense. God is not dealing with the final church today. He's dealing with today's church today. And today's church includes some goats and sheep's clothing. Maybe it includes a lot of Alright? But that's what God is concerned with. God is concerned... With the church as it is right now. Not the invisible church, not the organic church, but the visible church at this point in history is God's concern. Now, I hope I'm getting through because I, don't, I never know for sure if I am because this is very important. Because it means that the visible church is extremely important. Its government is extremely important. It's extremely important to be under government somewhere and not to be excommunicated. It's extremely important to be in church worshiping and not worshiping at home or some other place. It's extremely important to listen to the preaching of the word, official preaching of the word under the oversight of officers, and to participate in the sacraments. It makes a difference whether you are baptized and whether your children are baptized or not. If your children are not baptized, they're not part of the church, and God doesn't care about them in the sense that he cares about the church. They may be elect, God, but God doesn't care about them. At this slice of time right now, they're cursed. Okay, They're not in the church. God cares about those in the church. And how about those people that aren't elect? Does God care about them right now? Sure he does. You want proof? Watch Jesus weep over the city of Jerusalem. He's weeping for non-elect people, people that are reprobate from the beginning of history, those that God hates. What's he crying about them for? Because in the year 30 AD, in that slice of time, they're in the church. In 70 AD, at that slice of time, they ceased to be in the church and God cast them all into hell. He excommunicated all of them. But in the year 30 AD, Jerusalem is in the church. You see, and God cares about those who are in the church right then and there. Take another example, the people who came out of Egypt. We read about all the things God did for them and how He loved them in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. This is just a passage at random. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and they all ate the same spiritual food, capitalize that S with your pen, and all drank the same spiritual drink, capitalize that S with your pen, if your Bible did not have it. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock, you can capitalize that one too, which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Now God gives them both sacraments. He counts them as Christians. He treats them as Christians. He labors for them. He works for them. And then we see... Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Were they elect from the foundation of the world? No. Were they regenerate in their hearts? No. Did God care about them? Yes, as long as they were in the church. And then there came a time when God excommunicated them. History is real to God. See, some things are true for eternity. They're not our concern. We confess them. We know that there is a group of people called the elect, but we don't know who they are. And some things are real in history and in time and in the covenant. And those things are real to God. And God treats people as Christians who aren't elect. And we have to, too. I'll give you one more example. Just If you'll think about it, you'll realize that it's very true. Jesus is all the time giving bread to people and sitting down and having meals with people who are not elect. He fed the 5,000. And then it says he preached them a sermon. And after they heard the sermon, many of them didn't walk with him anymore. You'll hear it in John 6. Almost all of them went away. Now, this is after he's given them bread. Now, that is quasi-sacramental. Whenever you see people eating with Jesus, it's eating with God. All right? Jesus goes into the home of a Pharisee, eats with him, then chews him out. You see this over and over again in the New Testament. Why? Why? Because these people were circumcised, they were to be counted as Christians and treated as Christians. So Jesus comes to them and says, you people are the people of God, so act like it and shape up. They don't, they leave, they leave the presence of God and so they're excommunicated. communicated. But his initial word to them is, you're to be counted and treated as a Christian and so I exhort you as Christians to shape up. They choose not to do so, they don't persevere, then they must bear their judgment. Now, the other side of that is at one time a woman who had very genuine faith came to Jesus and asked him to heal her child. And Jesus said, no, I don't give the children's food to dogs. What was he saying to her? You're not circumcised. I'm not going to count you as a Christian, and I'm not going to treat you as a Christian. And she said, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And he says, you have real faith. And so at that point, we might say Jesus admits her into the church and treats her as a Christian on the basis of her faith. But you see, at, at that point, Jesus knew she was elect, didn't he? Didn't he know that she was regenerate? But how does he treat her? He treats her in terms of visible, objective principles. On the basis of whether she is baptized or this or uh, if she is in a household of circumcised men at this point in history, whether she is in the church or not. She wasn't in the church. Even though she had faith, Jesus won't have anything to do with her. And then he admits her into the church. All right? So we would have to say, what is the true church? The true church on November 14, 1982, is the visible church. It's not the invisible church. We can say that there is an invisible church made up of people in this room who are elect. God sees. Some of you may not be elect. We'll know that if you don't persevere. God will know it because God sees your heart. But we don't. And the church that God cares about, the church that Christ wept over in 30 A.D., the church that God works with in history is the visible church. God is working with you if you're here. If you're baptized and you're a member of his church and you're under government somewhere, God works with you. God cares about you. And that's the true church today. There is no other church with whom we have to do, and there is no other church with whom God has to do. You see, the elect, the role of the elect in the mind of God is not the church. It's the elect. The church is right here. You're it. You're the ones that God has to do with. Now, on the day of judgment, the last day of history, God has to do with the church then. And that church then will consist only of the elect because they and they alone will have persevered to the end. The question then is whether you persevere or not in the church. Not whether you're elect or not. And the perseverance now we have to do with. Because if you leave and don't transfer somewhere else, we'll have to declare you excommunicate. We can't excommunicate you, but we do bind on earth what we know has been bound in heaven. And we know what has been bound in heaven because the Bible tells us. And the Bible tells us that if you commit adultery and there's proof of it, you have to be cut off from the people. The Bible says if you forsake the assembling of yourselves together, you have to be cut off from the people. And so since God says it, we would have to do it, even if we don't like to do it. Our hands would be tied. So you see, perseverance is the question, persevering to the end. Now, from our point of view, this is very helpful in that now we can deal with the visible church that we see as it is, the church as a government. Even that, however, has fuzzy edges, especially in a time like our own. Because there are groups that practice baptism that we would have to say are really not part of the church, such as, say, the Jehovah's Witnesses. Because their confession is so far removed from the Bible that we can't count them. And then there are people who have been baptized into a church somewhere and who are apostates, and because the church is so weak, they've never been declared excommunicate, and yet they obviously are. And so that's a fuzzy edge, too. Somebody comes in here to the church and says, I need money. They do it all the time. Working down here, I begin to see more of this, you see. People come in and say they want money. And uh, their member, they were baptized 60 years ago. They haven't been to church in 30 years. But they're Christians and they want money. Well, the fact is, visibly, visible church-wise, they haven't been dealt with. And yet we know without much question that it's very hard to count them as Christians and treat them as Christians. There's an easy way to deal with that, by the way. You say, well, you sign a statement to come under our government here, take a vow to show up for Sunday morning worship and Sunday night worship and all these other things, and then we'll begin to count you and treat you as a Christian. Of course, they never want to do anything like that. Then there are people who we would have to say that, based on our conversations with them, are real Christians, but they're not on the roll of a church anywhere. They've never joined a church. They've been baptized, but they're not under anybody's government. There's nobody that can excommunicate them. If they get into sin, if they depart from the faith, there's nobody who can say, you're out. Somebody said they're in, but now they've drifted off somewhere and they haven't joined a church. These are all fuzzy edges in our pastoral dealings. But our pastoral dealings with people is not the same as our official judicial dealings. Judicially, the church is those whom we count as Christians and treat as Christians, and that's the visible church. Those are the ones in conclusion that God counts as Christians, that God treats as Christians today. The ones that God counts as Christians and treats as Christians on the day of judgment is a different group of people. Hopefully there's a lot of overlap. We'd all like to be there, wouldn't we? But it's a matter of persevering to the end and not falling away.
0: Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast.